September 7th, 2020. Happy Labor Day! What up, overtimers? Hope this finds you and yours enjoying the holiday weekend. Well, for those of you who were wondering, yes, I did air fry a steak and it was awesome. Preheat the fryer to 395, 8 minutes aside, a little less depending upon how pink you like it. Demetrius Johnson is today's guest. I knew DJ first from his days playing in Columbia, kind of lost track of him. Then about four years ago, he started to find his voice in the local African-American community. His foundation has done a lot of great work during this pandemic. DJ goes at life and this talk full on. Lost a couple of great guys this week, one you probably know and one you may not. Hall of Famer Lou Brock passed at 81. Look, I'm 51 and Lou was my first favorite. Athlete, musician, actor, author, Lou was my guy. Got the chance to meet him a few times and believe what you read, he was a person who did right by everybody. When I started this podcast, I tried a few times to reach out, but was told he just wasn't into doing this kind of thing anymore. He's the second guy we've lost that I wish we had had on. Also got word an old friend Dennis Davis passed. Dennis loved golf, and he apparently had a stroke on the course only to die in his sleep a couple days later. I'm not making a joke. Dennis always would say he could die happy after the Blues won the cup. If you knew Dennis, go check out his August 31st Facebook post and smile. This is only funny because no one is reportedly hurt. During a Trump support boat parade in Texas, six boats sank. Metaphor? Question mark. Three things you should, if you have not, make homemade heroes. Did it yesterday for the first time. Delicious. I followed the Alton Brown recipe. You're going to need a food processor, blender, something like that, and a brick. Next time I'm going to make it when hosting a party. Remember those? Number two on Hulu, they've produced The Last Days of Richard Pryor which is an odd title because it's really 99% about his career. Interesting old clips as you see him evolve from Bill Cosby-like to what he became. Great Dean Martin story, exiling himself in Berkeley. He was married seven times, two women twice. How do you get that second woman to marry it twice? To like cocaine and have too much money in the late 70s, early 80s. Recipe for crazy. Also doesn't help you grew up in a whorehouse in Peoria, Illinois. Lots of interviews accentuating Pryor's greatness. I need to hear more from Tim Reed. This is when I thank you for listening and ask you to spread the word, share, subscribe, etc. Helps me get in front of more ears and lets more people hear fun conversations about St. Louis. DJ St. Louis 7 is up on YouTube. You can find previous 7s by Googling OT with Oliver YouTube. I just put up a quick retrospective too, highlighting some of the past guests. That's probably the best thing if you wanted to share Give people a little taste about what this podcast is all about. Okay, number three, Demetrius has got a podcast, The Big Fella. Past episodes are on his personal and foundation's Facebook page, passionate talk within the African-American community. Hey, if you don't hear a lot from them, from that community, you should give the podcast a listen. Get some balance. As for DJ, he was fun to have on. Our audience don't overlap much, but he invited me on a show and was nice enough to tell his folks about what we've got going on here. How we're not the same old, same old. As for DJ, he ain't the same old, same old either. Go to Overtime. Overtime with Oliver, with my dad. Tell your friends. Hey, man, you know, when you're busy, you're busy. Man, when you're trying to make a living, it's hard. <laughs> if I had your money, I wouldn't have to do all this. Oh, yeah, if you had my money, we'd both be living in your car. Hey, hey, hey Dave, I wouldn't have to do all this if I had your money. <laughs> All right, everybody. Demetrius Johnson, uh, I know him, knew him, Missouri Tigers in the early 80s. You might have heard him on Hot 104, now hosting his own podcast with the big fella. 
and since 1992 has been running the Demetrius Johnson Charitable Foundation. Correct, sir? Yes, sir. I forget anything? Absolutely correct. No, you're absolutely correct. (laughs) All right, let's get it out of the way. M-I-Z. (laughs) Z-O-U. By the way, you'll notice my logo does not say Mizzou. It says Missouri. I know it, man. What's up with that, man? Do you know how hard it is to get a Missouri hoodie? They all say Mizzou now. I know. That's true. That is true. I mean, it's, I guess it's uh, the 21st century. All right. So we're going to talk about a lot of things. I mentioned the charity at the beginning. We'll come back to it. But I love the mission statement. Helping today's youth toward a better tomorrow. Yes. How'd you yes, come up with that? Uh, well, because I was one of those youth that somebody helped me and gave me a better opportunity, you know, to, to change my life. You know, I was that guy, I was that kid, you know, had a mom, you know, that um, had struggled with nine of us to, to take care of my family and on welfare and, um, but still did everything she had to do to make sure she provided the best opportunity, which is relative, the best opportunity for you and give you the best um uh, upbringing that she possibly can give us with all her heart and her and her soul. So she was, my mom passed about seven years ago and um, I wanted to make sure I maintain uh, that her legacy. So the things I do now is her legacy and just wanted to live on of impacting lives. And where did you grow up? I grew up in the Dawes Webby Housing Projects, right down 14th Street. Uh, so if you're familiar with St. Louis, used to be the old city hospital on 14th Street, I grew up in a high rise. They don't have them there anymore. They have, there's still uh, some, some areas down there, but the project, as it was when I grew up, it's not like that anymore. DJ, stupid question. How does mm-hmm. a single mom raise nine kids? Uh, dedication and uh, love and uh, belief in God and um, uh, just wanting to make sure that we, we became the best people we possibly can be. And I just have to just commend her. She was so freaking awesome, man. My brothers and sisters, uh, I mean, she, she did a great job, man. How are your brothers and sisters? Everybody okay? Yeah, well, I've lost uh, two sisters and uh, everyone else is uh, uh, still living. And uh, they, they do good. My brother, one brother lives in uh, Kansas City. Uh, a brother lives here, has a, a restaurant called Gary's Fine Dining right there on Grand, right across the street from the Fox. He used to own that some years ago, and then it closed down. He just reopened it again, you know, uh, in January. And he was doing good until the pandemic hit us. Uh, my sisters are all doing well. So uh, I'm, really, I'm really blessed, man. I'm really blessed to have a, have a uh, healthy family. How'd you like going to McKinley High School? Hey, man, you know what? Uh, I tell you what, I tell everybody this. McKinley High School probably was the most uh, diverse high school in the city of St. Louis at the time I was there. You had probably 60-40, 60% black, 40% white. So, you know, we had, you know, we had the, um, uh, the saying already in our, in our school system that we knew how to uh, interact with one another. So it was really cool. And then my football coach, probably one of the greatest guys in America who taught me so much discipline was uh, Jules Blanky. And uh, he died, that guy right there. When you're talking about a man shaping me to be a man and responsible, Jules Blanky was a hell of a, an example of hard work, dedication, and discipline. Was football your way out? Oh, no, 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 no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I wasn't, I wasn't a rocket scientist in the classroom. 
I was a guy that went in the classroom and um, and, and uh, did average work, you know. And but if I didn't have that means to play football, no telling where you know I would have ended up. So sometimes you don't want to think about if you didn't have it because I did have it. But the thing I did, I took advantage of it. That's the key: taking advantage of a talent, taking advantage of your opportunity, and, and taking it to its fullest. So football did that because you know. My mom never could afford to take us out to dinner. I never went to a nice restaurant until I was getting recruited to go to college. That was the first time. So I don't take nothing, man, I don't take nothing for granted. You know, and then when I got exposed to that environment, it, ch it changed the whole dynamic of, of what your, your dream is and what you're chasing. So it, it, it was a great experience. See, in high school, you were too busy chasing down your future wife. Hey, you know what? No doubt about it. I mean, Patricia was a good girl, man. We said Roosevelt was crazy. She was at Roosevelt. And um, we were rivals. McKinley and Roosevelt hated one another. And boy, she went through a whole lot over McKinley, man. I mean, Roosevelt. She, they drove her hard. But that's all right. And I tell the Roosevelt folks, they watching here, they thought I played on their, their school team because I beat them so bad, they thought I was a part of them. <laughs> it's like she went to KU. Right, exactly. right, exactly. And she also went to Mizzou too, so it was real cool. You talked about your first nice dinner being during the recruitment process. How was that for you? I mean, it was an experience, you know, because you don't know what to do. You don't know how to hold a knife. You don't know how to hold a spoon. You don't know the proper etiquette in the eating dinner. I had no clue. I had to watch everybody and, and just go through the motions and, and just – you know, follow the leader, man, you know, to get comfortable. So that's what I did to to, um, to kind of adjust in that environment. And that was the first time I had some escargot. Where was it at? Uh, at, at the restaurant. In fact, you know that um, off of 44, that hotel off of 44, uh, what is that, Holiday, it was Holiday Inn or something off 44? Hampton Inn, I think. Hampton Inn off of 44. That's where I had my first nice dinner. And uh, Bill Thunder Thornton, the recruiter, Bill Thunder Thornton was the uh, was, my, was recruiting me out of Missouri, and he took me there. And man, I had some escargot. Man, I didn't know it. And the butter on the toast. Oh, butter! Oh yeah, a little bread there. Then I got the dip in that man. Man, my whole life changed after that day. Anybody give you offers other than Mizzou? Man, I was recruited really heavily. Uh, I was going to sign with Nebraska. Uh, but I, but um, yeah, I was recruited really, really heavily. I, it came down between Missouri and Nebraska for me, and uh, I made the decision. Uh, in fact, my insurance agent today, Bob Tipton, convinced me. He's a state forum guy now. He was a, a teacher at McKinley High School. He was, in fact, he was our, our typing teacher. And I went in his classroom, and I was trying to type, and I kept looking at my hands. He kicked me out of the class because he told me I don't need to be looking down, you know. But he really had a, a major impact on me going to Missouri. He was a Mizzou grad, and he loved Missouri. And, he, man, he really stayed on top of me, and I decided to go to Missouri. So, yeah, I know I was recruited real heavily. We'll talk about this for a second. Missouri has struggled within St. Louis. When I say the name Norris Stevenson, what do you say? I say uh, – was treated unfairly at the University of Missouri. That's what I say. 
in the regime back then, they treated him unfairly. In fact, uh, myself, Don Johnson, uh, Lamont Downer, and uh, JC, your name is Jim Collins, we went and fought for him to get a North Stevenson, you know, uh, uh, monument in terms of inside an appreciation. He was the first black scholarship athlete in football, scholarship athlete at the University of Missouri. And for them not to recognize him and for the University of Missouri not to have the, every black kid that walked into the University of Missouri should have known about Norris Stevenson, particularly if you're from Missouri, from St. Louis. He was the first. And for them to, to, to not recognize him was a travesty. And I remember Mr. Stevenson telling me a story about when he was playing in the Orange Bowl. And he was crying when he was telling us the story. He said that uh, when they went to have dinner one evening and the sun set, was setting, one of the, the workers at the hotel when they were about to team have dinner came in and told him, hey, Mr. Stevenson, hey, sir, you got to leave because black folks were not uh, allowed to be in restaurants and dining facilities after dawn. And uh, he told me another incident on that trip where he was um, swimming in the ocean and that they made him get out of the water, out of the ocean by saying, you are too dirty to be in the ocean. How the hell can somebody be too dirty to be in the ocean? That's what they said. So I just thought they treated him so unfairly. And then I got to give uh, Mike Alden credit and Gary Pinkle credit. We had man-to-man, -man, heart to heart conversation with these guys. Took a minute, but they finally understood. So they got the North Stevenson Plaza of Champions. And you know, and they need to, they really need to insinuate that. So that what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna talk to uh, Jim Sturrock and uh, uh, the head coach, uh, Drink, and see if that's, you know, that needs to be accentuated, that this was the first out of Missouri who, who, who made an impact. Because I'm telling you, man, the struggles he had to go through made it easier for me, for him to go through that. Did you listen to Onion Horton when you were growing up? Oh, no question about it. Onion Horton um, is a guy that uh, we really, I really respected because Onion Horton, he was well-read and he could debate anybody on any subject. So I kind of, take some of my philosophy of, of Onion Horton philosophy and put it together. I, I was not, uh, I'm, Onion Horton was really, uh, really uh, knowledgeable, really good. I mean, he knew, I mean, the guy would go to the library and he would read all day and come back and ready to roll. My problem, I don't go to the library every day <laughs> and read all day. So I have to do last minute searches and call my buddy, uh, his name is uh, Dr. Eddie Yancey. And he's a professor at Memphis University. One of my best friends grew up with me at the projects. And um, when I have issues or uh, things I'm about to debate and talk about, he's my researcher. So, man, he has, he has it ready for me. And I'm ready to talk to it with anybody. Did Onion try to talk you into going to Nebraska? No. In fact, Onion never really told us not to go to Missouri. I know at one time before I got involved, before my day, Onion really never told us um, – Morris Henderson from the, uh, then the Argus newspaper, him and Onion was really, really close. And um, 
they had a problem with how Missouri was treating black athletes. So uh, they never really told me not to go there. So um, and I can appreciate that. So I was able to make the decision that I thought was best for myself. You graduate from high school when? Uh, 1979. I, I, I was, I graduated in 79. I graduated in Missouri 83, but I graduated, um, I was 20 years old graduating from Missouri. So at Missouri as a freshman, you're learning from probably the best defensive backfield the Tigers have ever had. You got Eric Wright, you got Johnny Poe, you got Bill Whitaker. What was that like watching those guys play? Hey, let me, let me, that, that's interesting because when I saw, I was a freshman and, um, when I saw Bill Whitaker, Eric, but Eric Wright and Johnny Poe, they was like the name. Eric Wright and Johnny Poe. Eric Wright and Johnny Poe, right? So uh, I'm a freshman, don't know nothing about the defensive backfield, can't even backpedal, can't do anything. However, Kevin Potter, he was a, uh, he was, he's a sophomore. He was, he was a, then they had him like a redshirt freshman, but he was a sophomore because he was their year. And I never forget Kevin Potter telling me, hey man, I want you to, Roll with me. We're going to be the next Johnny Poe and Eric Wright. I had no clue. And he really gave me a lot of confidence. And then Eric Wright really took me under his wing, his wing and just um, treated me like I was his little brother and uh, uh, taught me just how to be a guy. And another guy that was very instrumental in my career in Missouri, a guy named Mark Belton. I don't know if you remember Mark Belton. Mm -mm. His daddy was Ed Belton at Ladue High School, one of the winningest coaches uh, at Ladue High School, Ed Belton. Uh, Mark Belton, white guy out of Ladue, and, uh, you know, had a great life. For whatever reason, I became Mark's little brother. And he just loved to take care of me and gave me all the confidence and looked out for me. Even when I got out, even when I was in the NFL, he looked out for me. So there were guys on that Missouri world that really – Played a true impact, but I never imagined that we I was going to be the Eric Wright and Kevin's going to be the Johnny. I was the Johnny Poe, Eric and Kevin was the Eric Wright of our of our time. So eighty one, you're a sophomore. Uh yeah, I, I, yeah, sophomore, I believe. Sophomore. I mean, I, yeah. Warren Powell, so. coach. Yes, I played under Warren. Who's the defensive back coach? Zayvon Uralian. Hey, let me do this sure. for you. Let me do this for you. Hold on. I'm gonna give you some here. I'm gonna give you some history about that too. Xavier, I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna let you finish this. But Xavier Uralian was the defensive back coach at Missouri, and you talking about a hell of a defensive back coach. He, I mean, he talked weird, foreign language, but Xavier Uralian could coach. And I tell you what, when I used to go, when we went to the scouting combine, the scouting combine people used to look at us and how we had red man as our weight strength conditioning coach, they said, hey, man, you guys coming out of Missouri, you can tell you got a great strength and conditioning coach and a great secondary coach. So what'd you just, what'd you just go get? All right. Most people don't know this, but 19, was it 81 and 82? 82, I believe it was. I want to show you this. Can you see that? I do. <laughs> okay. You got Kevin Potter. And you got Raymond Harrison, you got Jeff Smith. This is Jeff Smith, Raymond Harrison, Kevin Potter, and me, and Zavin Uralian. All right? We was the first all-black secondary in Mizzou history. 
that ever ever started University of Missouri, we was the first all-black secondary. Missouri had never had an all-black secondary until we we wind up ending up like number one, number two in the country in pass defense. Fantastic. So, yeah. I mean, that, that, that was my formative years, man. I mean, that's when I became a Tiger fan. And you're going you're gonna to know I did a little research to remind myself, but in 81, everything in the Big 8 is Oklahoma and Nebraska. No and doubt. this year, first of all, you beat a top 10 team on the road at Mississippi State, which I don't know how long it had been since we had ever done that before. You remember right. that game? Yeah, I remember that game. Let me tell you, me tell you why I remember that game. The night before the game, we're in there. And who was our uh, defensive coordinator? Man, I cannot forget his, I forget his name. But I remember him sitting up there saying, hey, man, he talking to the, to, to the team, not team meeting, defensive team meeting. He said, guys, we got a lot of young bucks in the secondary. He said, this is what needs to happen. My D-line, you're going to have to put pressure on that quarterback because – our weakness is going to be in the secondary. I never forget him saying that. So imagine you about to go into the biggest game of your life down in Mississippi State, and the defensive coordinator said, "We're the weakness of the damn team." You know, <laughs> imagine that. Yeah, we we really uh, we really stepped our game up, and we we became one of the best secondaries in the country. You almost beat Nebraska. What was it like guarding against Irving Fryer? Well, I got good stories about that. Uh, we should have beat Nebraska. That year we should have beat them. We lost to them six to nothing, I believe. And what happened is, um, I, I'm, I'm gonna take the blame for that one. I'm gonna live with that for the rest of my life. It was it was a fourth and ten, and I was doing one on one with was a little it was a wide receiver. I can't remember his name. He ran an out. I slipped. He ran an out route. Got a first down, and um, they they got a first down and kept the drive moving, man. Prior to that play, it was a ball overthrown. He hit me right in the freaking chest. I should have caught it with my hands. It bounced off my chest, and I missed it. We get the ball in great field position. We had a good kicker, field goal kicker. We have an opportunity to win the freaking game. We should have won that game if I make the interception. Hey, DJ, you know why they say cornerbacks aren't wide receivers? Yeah, but, you know, you're right, because I ain't got no hands. But my hands was decent enough to catch that freaking ball. A baby should have caught that ball. On to better things, you do, the Tigers and you, beat Oklahoma for the first time since 1969. Yeah, that was a great game. Um, We came out there, we played at a high level. Uh, uh, Jeff Gaylord was putting that pressure up front, man. He was coming. I mean, that defense, we we stepped our game up, man. Potter was coming on that blitz. You know, we was covering on the side, on the outside of the, the, the cornerbacks, myself and Jeff Smith, Raymond Harrison, Kona. Uh, we, we was ready to play, man. And we, we played our butt off. And that was a great environment. Just seeing all the people scream and holler, knowing that we should not have had any chance to beat Oklahoma. And we go in there and we shocked the world, man. That was a great, uh, great environment at Columbia to beat uh, Oklahoma. True or false? The night before that game, we put a whole lot of water on that field. I w- we wouldn't have known. You know what I'm saying? I have no idea. You know, we, you know, those are the things they don't tell us. <laughs> it didn't matter what you put on the field with Oklahoma. They would have some ski shoes or, or water shoes because, I mean, they could roll, man, when we came out to play against them. They, they were good. They were really good. Season ends. You win a bowl game against Southern Mississippi 
That was uh, before Brad Smith. There was Reggie Collier. Re yeah, Reggie Collier was a hell of an athlete, man. And we had to uh, clap down on him. We had, they had to put pressure on our side. Corners had to cover. I mean, our secondary was so solid. It allowed us to do a lot of man-to-man. -man because back then, they didn't want to pass a lot. If they had to pass, you know, we was able to protect that. So we had to do man-to-man. -man and Reggie Collier, we slowed him down. was able to win that game. And, DJ, we're going to talk a lot about what's happening now in St. Louis and what you got going on. It's just fun to reminisce a little bit. No, you got 82, good. not as much fun as 81. No, we went uh, – I think we went – did we go 6-6? Six and six? You had two ties. Did we have two ties in 86? Yeah, you had Iowa State and somebody else back-to-back -back ties. Wow, I didn't know that. Are you serious? What was, what was, what was our record? Uh, I think 5-4-2. and two. Wow, we had two times. I have no, no idea. I was in the stands for this one. Texas comes to town, and unless I'm mistaken, that's still the most highly attended game in the history of Faroe Field. Uh, what year was that? 1982. Uh, 82, it was. I mean, Texas was no, no joke. They, 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 they came in, you're right, it was the biggest crowd I've ever seen. What was it like to defend Marcus Dupree and Mike Rozier? Well, great question, man. Boy, where do you come up with these questions, man? You're on your game today, dude. <laughs> uh, we played Oklahoma down in Oklahoma, and Marcus Dupree, he breaks through the line. Our free safety, Raymond Harrison, comes up to hit Marcus Dupree. Squares right up and bam, Marcus Dupree runs him over. And we have to drag him down, get him down. We go on the sideline, Raymond is crying. We look at him and say, Raymond, what's going on? He's crying. He say, man, the guy ran me over, man. The guy ran me over. We say, Raymond, man, you can't cry, man. We got a long day with this dude. You know, hey, we're going to be out here all day. <laughs> we got to tighten this thing up, man. Forget about that. And um, uh, that, that's, the, that's what I really remember. Because, man, when we were playing in Oklahoma, yes, the environment in them, them, them areas was unbelievable, man. You can hold the Dupree down 12 times, but then when he whips off a 30, a 90, and a 70, doesn't look like you had a good day against him. Right. I mean, they, they were just so back – back then, man, running games and football was just so powerful, man. They played another level, man. They, they, I mean, just athletic. Those guys were big, you know. Everybody probably doing steroids back in the day. You know, it, it was a different beast now, man. It was a different beast. But and then you know what? They didn't they didn't they didn't water down the rules either. You know, you can you can jam a guy all over the place, knock him down, whatever. Now, you know, it's, it's watered down a little more, but athletes are still athletes when it's all said and done. Got a trivia question for you, DJ. Yep. Nineteen eighty one. Yep. No, nineteen eighty two. Nineteen eighty two. You led the conference in interception return yardage. Are you serious? You got to get a plaque or something, man. I had no idea. I ain't no. Are you serious? You know, you just educated me, Dave. <laughs> I had no idea, man. I swear, I ain't no. Wow. You know, DJ, cool you, you also used to be pretty good. I had no idea, man. I, I, I'm telling you. I, wow. I can't wait to tell my son that. <laughs> I had no idea, man. I had no idea. No idea. Was it a dream of yours to play in the NFL? 
hey man, you know, I never came up thinking about playing in the NFL, but we came up mocking uh, who we were and the teams we were. You know what I'm saying? Hey man, I'm Dallas Cowboy. I'm Pittsburgh Steelers. You know, but me really um, thinking about, hey man, I'm going to be the next guy to play in the NFL coming out of the project. I, no, I never thought that. The only time I really thought I had a chance was probably my senior year. After I had a pretty good senior year. Junior, senior year was pretty good. I had, thought I had a chance, but I never, as a kid, dreamed of being in the NFL. You know, guys, I mean, I dreamed of being in the NFL. I never had that. I never had a dream like that. So what was it like when you got drafted by the Lions? Hey, man, you know, I, I don't know. Let me give you some some history, Big Father. Let me give you some, right? I don't know that year. Do you, let me give you a trivia question. Uh, who else was I drafted by in that year? Not a football team. Boy, you're wrong. You're wrong. You Yes. I was the seventh or sixth player pick overall in the USFL. I was drafted by the Denver Gold. How did you turn down that money? Well, I promised my mother, and, you know, money was relative then. But I told my mom, I promised her that I was going to get my degree in four years. Because my mom said if I get my degree in four years, he was going to go and get a GED and go to college. My mom went back to Forest Park. She got a GED, got an associate's degree at Forest Park. And that was the best thing, best decision I ever made. Because I knew if I wouldn't have gotten my degree, you know, what, what could have happened to me if I didn't make it in the NFL? What, could, what happens to you when it's over? You know, you still got to be able to survive. So that was the best thing that happened to me, man. I mean, we talked about Marcus Dupree. He went and got mm-hmm. the money, got hurt. Now, I'm not saying to start disparaging things about him, but there's just an example of somebody who did leave early, did go to the USFL, and his life hasn't been as much fun as it was earlier on. Yeah, because you know what, man? Because a lot of times that that's almost like as a black young black boy, it's almost like that's the only – that's not the only thing, but that's some people put in their mind – that's one of the only process of you being able to get out your environment. NFL, you know, NBA. And, and that's not that's not true. I mean, that education has paid great dividends to me, you know, and for me and for my family. So that's the best thing I did is to get that degree out of the University of Missouri. People talk about the difference in speed between college and the pros. I gotta think it was even a bigger margin when you were coming up. What was it like that that first NFL experience when you were like, huh, they all run four fours? Well, <laughs> they all could rule, could all run, right? And uh, when you see it, you know, you're just competitive, so you don't really pay any attention to it. A couple things that happened within that, that time period. I remember um, it was a rookie out of Wisconsin, tight end. I cannot remember his name, trying out for the team. He ran like a, a what's called a seam pattern down the seam deep. And I was a strong safety in Detroit and our free safety. We closed on the ball so fast. I'll never forget the guy getting up. And he looked at us and said, man, damn, I've never been around this, man. You guys closed on that ball quick. <laughs> that speed, that level of the speed is off the charts. So when you hear guys not making a team, think that they can't play. It's two things that happen. Their ability to adapt to the speed 
and adapt to the fast-moving pace of the offensive plays or the defensive plays. It, you've really got to be sharp and on your game to get it. A lot of those guys, people just think you're just broad. You know, broad, the guy, you know, I'm just out of here. I'm just – you've got to be able to be um, able to adapt to the game and the speed to the game. It is, it's, it's unbelievable. In Detroit, you got to see Walter Payton twice a year. Yeah, I, I, we played – yeah, my rookie year I started in Detroit. And uh, we played Walter Payton in, in Chicago. And uh, he they throw a, a pitch to the right side. I'm on the left side. I come up from the safety position. Man, I get a – bam, I get a good hit on Walter. Man, and I look at him, I hit him. I mean, a great hit. I'm like, Mr. Payton, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Mr. Payton. He looked at me and said, young fella, you all right? That's a good hit. You got to bring in another one. Good hit, young fella. So, I mean, yeah, Walter Payton was a – then he was a nice guy. After the game, we talked to you. And he would always invite players to go to Houston and work out with him in the summer. You guys want to come work out with me? You can. You're talking about just a great ambassador and a great person. Walter Payton was that. So here's a quick Detroit story for you. I had a brother who lived in Detroit. And Detroit obviously hosts Thanksgiving game every year. Mm-hmm. And he would tell me the stories. God help if it was the afternoon game. But people would show up like at 9 o'clock, and it was just drink until they couldn't stand up anymore. Do you remember those crowds being just a little bit more loud? Or do you, do you agree with what my brother used to tell me? Your brother 100% right. Detroit Thanksgiving Day was a tradition. I mean, that's a tradition of Turkey Day. You know, and we used to play Chicago and, and, and the teams like that. That was an unbelievable environment. Everybody looked for Turkey Day. When I first got to Detroit, I didn't understand what it meant. After I've been to Detroit, I knew that that was like the, the, the rallying cry for the, the whole city of Detroit. <laughs> you know, everybody come to Pontiac, and we're playing in the Pontiac Silverdome. Everybody from Detroit and Pontiac come in Arbor. I mean, they're there. So that was, a man, you're talking about the Grand uh, off the chart. They, I mean, they used to be at a high level, man. And we used to watch them play at a high level, too, in that game. That's one time you didn't want to play Detroit was on Thanksgiving. Hardest team to scheme against? Um, oh, I tell you, San Francisco 49er with Joe Montana. Because we didn't play them often. You know, we played them a couple times. And uh, I remember playing in the game – and I was disguising the coverage. And as soon as he, they snapped the ball, he knew exactly what we were in. That dude was so brilliant, so fast at the game. He knew the coverage. He knew I was going to drop. He knew everything. That San Francisco, Joe Montana was the hardest guy this game against. It doesn't hurt when you have Jerry Rice. Yeah, but they, they had uh, Solomon. They had uh, – uh, uh, what's, what's the guy in Nebraska – uh, the running back, Craig, Roger Craig, Roger had Craig. all the points. Yeah. Yeah, so we, they, they, they were good. They were good. But he was so brilliant. And as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a guy, as a leader, he was brilliant. You ever get a chance to play at Bush Stadium? That's the only stadium I've never played at, man. Oh. I, I mean, I hope, man, because, you know, I used to come home on the off season, and, you know, when they had O.J. Anderson and all them boys, and when, before he got traded – I used to come home, they're they, they veterans, you know, I'm a rookie. And we used to go to Bally's off of uh, Dorset. We used to have a basketball court in there, Lionel Washington and all those guys, Leonard Smith, 
we all used to play basketball against one another and compete and talk trash. I always wanted to come home and play. The closest I got was Kansas City. Stuck around seven years. You finished up with the Miami Dolphins. How tough was it to hang it up? Hey, man, let me tell you something. I got to thank uh, my wife, right? Never forget it. I hurt my foot, and, uh, and I called her, and I told her, hey, man, I don't know what I'm going to do, man. I'm hurt. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I never forget her telling me this, man. This is what you need, that support system. I don't know how many women would have done this, but she said, look, once you come home and be with me and the kids, we're going to be fine. Come on home. I'll never forget it, man. I am indebted to that woman forever. Forever. Some guys can't hang it up. When I got out of the game, it was hard because, first of all, I knew I, I was going through a lot of stuff. And, and I got unjustly traded out of, out of Detroit, which is another story. Because me and the defensive back coach didn't get along. So they traded me after I had a great season. And that, that was just putting really a sour taste in my mouth. And I remember being on a plane uh, flying home. But I got to go to Indianapolis. They traded me over there. Most people don't know I got traded to Indianapolis. And I was there for like two or three days. They cut me. And I got picked up. But they Detroit set me up. Joe Bashowski and Jack Bashowski, Jack Bashowski were brothers. One was in Indianapolis. The other was in uh, Detroit. They traded me there for Indianapolis to cut me because Indianapolis, um, they, I had no fan base. They don't know me. And I never, when I, when I thought about it, after the fact, I remember looking on, the, riding on the plane and reading the USA Today. And it was talking about star defensive uh, back, safety Demetrius Johnson traded Indianapolis Colts for a bargain basement price. Mm. And let me tell you, let me tell you, Dave, Oliver, are you ready for this one? They traded me for like a, 10th round pick 10 years down the road and I was a starter I had no clue that that's what's happening to me had no clue traded me for like a 10th round pick 10 years down the road they traded me to just get me out of there please tell me you've looked up who that player became uh that that they traded me for yeah uh I have no idea. I mean, really it could care. be like one of those, and that tenth round pick became Bennington. Yeah, I no, man. So to answer your question, I was really soured after that how they treated me, and uh, I never looked back after that. So what happened when I when I finished playing, I I I, um, I got away from the game. I w- I didn't go to no football games for like two years. Didn't even watch it on TV for two years. Get it all out of my system. And I don't talk about my career that often to people because, you know, that was something in the past. It's something that God blessed me with a great opportunity to be involved in, but it's something that I don't even think about that much anymore. My, my, my son, my daughter, like, my, my wife had made a, a collage of stuff over the years. My daughter's looking to, Dad, why you, you, you don't know what's it? I'm like, mm. you know, I, 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 I got out of it. I just, it was a great part of my life. Gave me an opportunity to start. But after that, I've never, I've never looked back on it. And I have no regrets, man. Well, I have one regret. Give it to me. 
that regret is when they came to trade me, I was in training camp. I go back, my mom told me to go back to Detroit and be a model citizen. Just that, son. I've never gotten problems anyway, you know, but just be a company man, you know, just say all the right things. So I went back to Detroit because I love my mom and respect her so much. I did everything she asked me. I was doing this and then one day we, had, we, we come to the morning practice. They said, we're changing the, 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 the roster today. Uh, Griff, you're going to be starter. Another guy, you're going to be under Griff. I mean, I was like third or 14. Mind you, I just came off one of the great seasons. Led the team in tackles. I was up there in interceptions. I was up there in sacks. I was up there in forced fumble. Number one in fumble recoveries. And, man, this, this guy hated me so much. I'm going to tell you who the guy was. His name was Willie Shaw. Willie Shaw became the defensive coach here with the Rams. Willie Shaw from the Raiders? Right. His son, yes, his son – uh, it's the head coach at Stanford. Okay. So Willie Shaw became was our defensive back coach in Detroit, and came here to St. Louis later on after years years after I got out of the game and was coaching here with the Rams. And it's interesting when he saw me, he asked me, "Can he talk to me?" But I, I mean, I despised him, man. I mean, I really despised what he did to me. I mean, it was unfair. He would call the defensive. Wayne Fox was our defensive coordinator at the time. Wayne would call, tell us something at halftime what to do. Wayne would walk away. Now, he, then you break up in your groups. Willie Shaw would tell me to do something different. Do what Wayne said. Because I made all the adjustment calls on defense. All the defense adjustment calls I called. He said, run this play a few times and go back and start running this play. I go in there. I'm running the play, run the play. I go back to what he told me to do. Uh, Daryl Rogers at the time runs down the sideline screaming and hollering at me, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? Who told you to call? And I say, Coach Shaw told me to mix it up. He gets on the headset. Willie, he said you told you didn't tell him that? You know, so who's going to win? Right. You know what I'm saying? Who's going to win that case? So when I got out of the game, uh, I, I had so much animosity for how I treated, because I should have been playing for a long time. But when it got hurt, and I should have stayed, I should have ended my career in Detroit, you know. And um, I've always had that 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 bad feeling. I've I've been back to Detroit maybe a few times, you know. They call, ask me to come back now. I still, I just, I just don't go around it no more, man. Right. You know, it's just, I just don't like it no more. I didn't anyway. I like it now, but I don't. I, I didn't like it for a long time. So onward and upward, we're entering the next stage of our life. We got a cup of, co uh, a cup of coffee selling, and then you start to sell and create and found your foundation. Well, I started my foundation in Detroit. Oh. And I was doing things in Detroit, but I wasn't doing it at a high level. I would go you know, speak to kids, do stuff like that. But when I came back to St. Louis, I don't know if you remember, it was uh, uh, the uh, Phyllis Wheatley uh, YMCA for uh, home for uh, homeless women, and I wanted to um, raise some money for them. I said, "Man, let me raise some money for them. Wow, that'd be cool." So I go and meet with them. They send me out to cling to this black guy, who was their PR 
uh, firm that was working for them. And I had to wait there, man, a buddy. We had waited there. I wait, I'm waiting there like 45 minutes, dude, late. He finally comes. And I say, hey, man, uh, I'm here. I want to raise money for the, you know, Phyllis Wheatley uh, YMCA for, for homeless women. The guy says, hey, man, we have a $30 million uh, uh, project that we're working on. I really don't have time for this. But they want to do it. I really don't want to do it. But they want to do it. So I guess I have to do it. But whatever you want, I mean, what, just tell me, man. We'll see what we can do. i never forget walking out of that door. And i never forget picking up the phone, calling my agent and my lawyer. His name is Michael Cullen. In fact, I want to do uh, some prayers out to his father, uh, James Cullen. Jim Cullen was, he was a founding, one of the founding members of the Blues. Uh, he was a lawyer. His son and I became best friends. And I called him. I said, man, let me tell you what just happened. This jerk off, just talk to me like I... I I can do it. And I he didn't want to do nothing for me to raise money. I say today, this is going to be the last time anybody tell me who I can raise money for and who I can help. I want to officially get the Demetrius Johnson Charitable Foundation rolling. Let's go. And they put the paperwork in. And after that, we went off for the races. We don't get grants. We just raise money, man. We don't get all the grants and stuff. We just do the best thing. So it's been great. I love how you stress education. Uh, Oh, no doubt, man, because I was that guy, man. I was that guy that came from nothing, man. I was that guy that struggled in school, man. I struggled in elementary school. I struggled in high school. I wind up graduating from the University of Missouri in four years, psychology degree, in four years. Not only that, I graduated on the dean's list at the University of Missouri. So... I know the importance of that education. I know. The two things, if you ask any of my kids, two things, you, if you ask them, what is important? What do your dad say is important for you to succeed? This is what they're going to say. Education and relationships. If you ask them what kind of thinker they need to be, they're going to say critical. Because one bad decision can cause you your life or put you in a bad situation. So no doubt about it. Education and relationships, those are the, the catalysts moving forward in your life. I'm going to talk a little bit about Michael Brown, but before we do that, I heard your talk. I'm not even going to call it an interview. I'm going to say your talk with Mr. Brown Sr. Yes. We need more of him in this world. Yes. Mr. Brown, man. I don't know if you got kids or not, David. Three. But when you have kids, man, you know, you try to protect them as much as you possibly can. My daughter went to Loyola. And I remember her coming home, and uh, she's going to a friend's house. Now. She's like sophomore year in Loyola, Chicago. She's going, hey, Dad, I'm about to go to a friend's house. I say, call me when you get there. All this, let me know what's happening, where you're going. And, and I never forget her saying this to me. She said, Dad, you have to trust. What your mom taught me, I, I listened. And I'm going to do the right thing. So... When you see a, a man lose a son, particularly a black boy, in that kind of dramatic fashion, man, and it, it, it just, I don't know if I can be, I don't know if I can live through it, honestly. When I hear Mr. Brown talk, Michael Brown Sr. talk, I just, 
get amazed because I don't know, honestly, if I have the strength, the power, although I believe in God, I don't know if I can dig down, man, and get through it. I love my kids so much. And they are great kids. I ain't talking about good. They are great kids. Never had issues with them. And to see them lose their life in a bullcrap situation, and man, I can, I can, I don't want to never imagine what he's going through daily, man. That just, it's unbelievable. And what's really heartwarming when you hear him talk is he sure a hell, he struggles inside. He just Woo. knows he, he's got to play to the camera and for the love of his son, he's doing the best he can. Well, he said that in my interview. He said, it's difficult. You have no idea how, how I'm hurting inside. I cry inside. How this just beating me up? It's it's terrible. And I'm sitting up there like, man, I'm I'm captivated by his words because I I don't want to imagine it, and I can't imagine it. You know those two things I don't want to, and I don't, and I can't. So listening to him and feeling his pain of what he he's gone through, it's just it's just it's amazing. You know, so DJ, I'm not political. And part of it is because I'm not smart enough to know what I should know. And B, I don't know if the person I'm talking to is telling me what, you know, is the truth. In that mm -hmm. podcast, it did seem like you have some issues with Leslie Bell. Wesley Bell. Yeah, well, I do have a problem with Wesley Bell because um, with the Mike, Michael Brown Jr. situation, he took his whole campaign and surrounded it with the Michael Brown campaign. Uh, Michael Brown Jr. death, saying, I'm going to come in, I'm going to give it for an opportunity to see, you know, what, what's the improper uh, improprieties of it were. And he gave that commitment to get their support. Michael Brown Sr. was even quoted on my show saying he went out and campaigned for him. Because even though he said Wesley Bell, and, and trans, all transparency, he said Wesley Bell never told him he was going to open the case. He said he's going to look into opening the case. But in that mind, when, you, when you're dealing with a person's sensitivity, vulnerability, incapacitated thinking because of the, what you're going through, the trauma that you just experienced, you're, you're saying, I'm going to open it up. It's telling me you're going to really give me a chance to, get to, to exonerate my son, you know, in, in this very nasty situation. That's what you told me. But it didn't happen. Wesley Bell told uh, told Miss McFadden, McSpadden, who is the mother of Wesley Bell Jr., that he is not going to reopen the case and that um, he don't want to be attacked like T Karen Gardner is getting attacked in St. Louis, which is one of the most ridiculous things I ever heard a man could say, particularly when he ran and had black folks, I mean, he may not have done anything deceptively, but he put the perception out there, if I'm going to open up a case. He didn't open up the case. He said he's going to investigate. He didn't. He didn't go out and interview nobody, talk to nobody. Only thing Wesley Bell did is open up a file, read the files and say, hey, okay, whatever was written, we're going with. And then that's a film that's out there showing whole different, you know, contradiction of 
things that happened. But Wesley Bell couldn't figure that out. So I have a major issue with Wesley Bell. He's a guy that I, I'm really, I'm really just. Um, when you talk about a guy, you just don't respect. I don't have no respect for the guy. Mr. Brown could have said anything happened that meeting, and nobody would have known. He didn't have to come yeah. out and say what he was or what not was not promised. He could have just said he screwed me, and he didn't say so, that. And I thought that was incredible. So what does that tell you about him? You know what I'm saying? What does that tell you about Michael Brown Sr.? He did not he did not compromise Mr. Bell at all. You know what he said? He said, hey, man, the guy did not say uh, he was going to um, open my case. He said he's going to give us a chance to revisit the case. And he don't feel, honestly, they really don't feel that he did a good job in trying to open up the case and try to revisit it. And, and now, it, and then it's, if anybody want to question uh, Michael Brown Sr., what it tells you, well, you know what? Maybe Michael Brown Sr. has some uh, ethics and, and have some quality about himself that some people want to question. And, you know, when somebody, kid died, how in the hell would you act if your kid died? You know what I'm saying? Get murdered, get shot. I don't care what he did in that store. It did not. Huh. It did not get to the level where he should have been shot in the street and laid his body there for hours, uncovered. Come on, man. I, I get ticked off about it because, you know, I have some white folks in up here telling me, there you go again, using a race car. Like I got a damn race car to use. Only card I use is a reality card. I ain't got no race card. I had a damn race card. I would use it. Shit, if, if the race car would get me to get to fairness, I would use it every day of the week. But like, wanna wanna put, pretend that we got a race car that we can go in our pocket and pull out a race car, which is the most ridiculous stuff I ever heard in my life. So, yeah, I'm 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 really ticked off about it. So, so another thing, unfortunately, that we probably should touch base on. About a year later, in November, Mizzou's got an issue. The African American community isn't being heard. Jonathan Butler's going on a hunger strike. I saw some YouTube stuff, and by the way, I 1,000% agree with you on this one. What the hell was up with Tom Wolf? You know what? I think in those situations, those guys get afraid. You know, I mean, because think about it. He get all his money from whites, you know, the white alumni base is where he get his money from. So, you know, and then in their mindset, they don't want to uh, – uh, ruffle nobody's feathers and don't want to be just honest and transparent. If there's issues, you would think you would want somebody to come and aggressively address those issues because when it's all said and done, Missouri, and I don't care how anyone take this, the University of Missouri football team is not going to win with all white players. Ain't going to happen. Just ain't going to happen. So, you know, you want to make it fair and equitable for all your students up there, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, and give them a fair opportunity to get a, a, a true college experience. How do you do that? By listening to what they have to say. You know what I'm saying? I can't, David, I can't tell you how I feel to be white. I can't tell you what to do as being a white man. 
I can just tell you how it is, my experiences as a black man, what I experienced. But for whatever reason, there's a lot of folks and there are white folks who would say, what I need. Well, don't tell me what I need. You ain't lived in my shoes. You don't know how my environment is. You don't know what my mindset is. You don't know what my experiences has been. Don't tell me what I need to survive. Because when it's real, the reality of it is, we are in two different worlds, man. If anybody with any true, honest, and candid conversation, they would look at it and say, yeah, you're right. So what he should have done is had a conversation with those young folks, get a true understanding of where they're coming from, and then go from there. That's all they had to do. And things would have been different, guarantee me. DJ is a white guy. The following story embarrasses me, um, makes me sad. It did not hit the national media, but I saw you talking about it. Can you give me a little bit more background about the cotton ball story? Which cotton ball story? I don't know what you're talking about. A whole bunch of white guys showed up at a thing with cotton balls. Oh, yeah. In Columbia? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, supposedly it was at the black. I don't know it 100%. But the story I got, it was that I think they showed up at the Black Student Union. And... Um, and I think it's uh, uh, they came to throw cotton balls out there. I guess, I guess um, I'm not sure because I I, I, don't, I wasn't there. From what I hear, the allegations are that they came and they threw cotton balls in order references to black folks. You need to be picking cotton. You don't need to be here. And that was a derogatory statement going back to slavery. You know. Hey, that's what you, that's your value. Your value is to go out and pick cotton for us. And that, that was, that was really an unfortunate situation, but you know, um, like I wasn't there. It's just what I've heard. And, and I didn't like that because, you know, if Missouri's going to move, if you go down South, look, think about what I'm about to say. Down South, LSU, Alabama, down South was one of the worst segregated areas for black folks in the world. You know, that was just terrible down south. I mean, that's why you had the North fighting the South. It was so bad. And for Alabama to at least treat the ball players, the black ball players, decent. LSU to treat the ball, black ball players. Don't you think here in Missouri we can at least do that? But think about this. Then you got a governor, a white governor. You got a white um, state United States senator. You have... Um, you have a, an attorney general, all white men, coming after a black prosecuting attorney of the city of St. Louis and making all kind of derogatory statements about it. She's inept. She's incompetent. She's stupid. Guess why? Because she's bringing the credibility and accountability to people who've always treated black folks unfairly in the city. See, that this. Number shows that when you talk about the governor, and when you look at the when they did a, a statewide audit, it showed the black folks is five times more likely to get pulled over or not, and are getting pulled over. Those are facts. See, we can't argue facts. We can argue, I mean, you can argue thought, thoughts and theories, philosophies, but we can't argue one and one is two. Now you can argue one and two is two but you can't argue one and one is two. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? And that's the problem. They want to argue that 
one and one is two. But it's truly one and two is three. That's what they were, you know, and, and that's the problem we have, man. They can only open their minds and try to treat everybody fairly. Now don't just say it. But we, you know, and the thing now, the 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 thing to do now is, oh man, we need we need black folks strength, we need black folks power, we need everybody. I mean, everybody wearing shirts and everybody. Tell me, this is what I want you to do. Tell me how does that translate into fair, equitable opportunity? When you show me that and you put it on the table, guess what? I'm going to be a happy man. And of course, most recently, we've got the George Floyd. It feels like things are changing. White guy's perspective or you kind of agree? I think what's happened that the millennials, the young white millennials and the black folks uh, are, are, are looking at this thing a lot differently. And I think the pandemic was the, first, the best thing to happen. And, 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 I, and I don't mean to be derogatory or disrespectful because people are dying from this pandemic. I mean, it's terrible. But it, it, one of the best things that happened in terms of awareness of how uh, um, segregation and how discrimination and how um, the playing field is not even. Because there were tons of people at home locked in, can't do anything, millions, and was able to witness a modern-day lynching in Minnesota. Normally, we're all about our business and doing all other kind of things, so we really can't see those things because our daily lives are so, uh, so uh, compound and so taken up with all kind of things that we don't see it, but guess what? We actually saw it. We saw it, and, and you know what? There are folks that are saying, wow, things do happen to black folks differently than it happened to white folks. Wow, we saw a man just getting murdered. Wow. Now they want to say, okay, we do. And there's some, not all, but there's a lot who say, hey, man, I, I understand now. I'm, I've been awoken or awakened by what I've seen. So that, that's one of the things that I look for, I look at and say, okay, maybe awareness will be more accepted now. And I said, I'm, and stop saying I'm using a race card. Like I could pull a card out of my pocket that would stop racism. You know, I heard you talking on uh, 104 about the COVID, telling folks, look, some of these jobs just aren't coming back. We got to relook yeah. at what we're doing to get paid moving forward. No doubt about it. Because what's going to happen, two things going to happen in this pandemic. Well, three things. A lot of people are going to lose their jobs. A lot of companies are going to go out of business and a lot of folks are going to get rich. Those are three major things going to happen in this, in this pandemic. We got to understand then, think about the, 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 the people who's working at the grocery stores, who's, uh, who's, who's doing all those, the jobs that people looked at as being menial, ain't important all, you know what I mean? They've become the most essential people in this country. And they don't even get paid like it. They don't even get the reward like it. Now, guess what? Those people who we always turn our nose on, I'm, and then it's people who with status have turned their nose on these people. Now, guess what they're thinking? I need these people in order to survive. And that's an, in, the, in the hell of an irony that all the people with all the, the well-to-do, able to do things, now they're looking at it and saying, wow, 
we truly need these people. They wasn't saying that at one time. You know, are you expendable? Now nah, you ain't that expendable. So you know what? Treat them, compensate them fairly as if you need them. And, 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 and if this pandemic is going on for perpetuity, you know, for perpetuity. So that's what they need to do is look at it like that. Last political question as we start to wrap up with uh, Demetrius Johnson. Nationally, Clay losing to Bush was a shocker. Did you see that happen? Happening? I don't think nobody really saw that happening, really. But it tells you the movement. And the movement, you cannot ever rest on your laurels and what you've done in the past. It's kind of like me saying, hey, I've helped people. Not everybody should respect me. No. I, I saw, this is interesting, I saw LeBron James in a bubble. They played the game the other night, and they beat a team out of Portland. And they showed a video of him working out before the game. That morning, LeBron James worked as if he was on the offseason lifting weights, had his trainer in there, doing all the things. The point I'm making, in order for LeBron James to continue to be great, he's got to work like it's his first day on the job. And he's trying to create. Lacey Clay, acting like that was not the first time on the job. He dropped his guard. He got complacent. And guess what? That girl, she came the young lady, not the girl, um, Corey Bush, the young lady, Corey Bush, stepped her game up and went after the champ and defeated the champ on his home ground. His lazy work habits and taking the vote for granted cost him dearly. And guess what? Caused his family and him to have a legacy. Mm. He didn't, he wasn't able to walk out on his own terms. He walked out on somebody else's terms. And guess how I bet his, him and his father's looking. He got his daddy. If I was his daddy, I'd be looking at him and say, damn, man, you blew it. How would you take this for granted? That's the key to all of us, Dave. David, being on your overtime with Oliver, I want to give you the same response I would give you on my show. You know, we got to always look to be the best and do our best to give a, a good performance and, and do our best to give a, a candid, uh, true value answers and questions if we're going to be the greatest. I'm not trying to be the greatest. I'm just trying to run with the greatest. All right, man. Almost ready. Going to go do a St. Louis 7, but – Plug your podcast one more time, and I'll ask you two more questions. Well, you can uh, you can follow me on Demetrius Johnson. Um, Demetrius Johnson, go on my uh, Facebook and find me, or you can watch me every listen to me every Sunday morning on Hot One Hundred Four Point One from eight to ten a.m. And we have candid conversations. We we get them all on have great conversations. There are more former Missouri Tigers now coaching in high school that I can remember. Is this going to help the program? Yes, I'm going to tell you why. Because, well, not because they're coaching, because Coach Drinkowitz has come out and 
show them and then showing them that, hey, you guys are valuable as, as former Tigers. We want to be a part of your program. We want you to be a part of our program. But Coach Drinkowitz has done more than any other coach right now to come and ca captivate and cultivate the relationships with these coaches. So, yes, it's huge for the coaches to be former Mizzou coaches, uh, uh, former Mizzou players, but for Coach Drinkowitz to come and, 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 and work that relationship. It's been great. It's going to work big time. Is it time to start paying college athletes? Come on, man. They should have been paying them 30 years ago. They've ripped these kids off, and they, 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 they sell their likeness. You can't, I mean, it was, it was, at one time it was so bad. If my mom was sick, if you're an alumni and, and, and I couldn't get home, you couldn't even give me a ride home. I'm on the campus and you see me walking and it's raining and a storm. I couldn't, if I was a former uh, alum, I couldn't even give you a ride. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's, it's terrible. They done made billions of dollars off the back of all these athletes. Billions. They should have been paid years ago. And then I heard, what's that guy? Was it Scott Frost? No, no. Uh, the, the former quarterback from um, Florida, Tim Tebow. He said, well, I don't like it because um, I tell you, it's going to really, really, uh, it's not going to be fair. Tim Tebow, somebody needs to smack him upside his head. Hey, DJ. He day, benefited from it. DJ, the yeah. day Tebow doesn't have a microphone in front of him, yeah, it's a good day for everybody. I know that's right. Exactly. I agree. You know, hey, Dave, think about this. He benefited from it. You're going to tell me they weren't giving him money under the table? You're going to tell me they weren't taking care of him? And Heisman Trophy went at Florida, giving him stuff. Then he wants to be the main one sitting up here talking about, oh, it's going to take the purity away from the game. I guess it will take the purity away from his game. Ooh, I mean, I, see, I, I despise athletes who do, does that. Who, who make those ridiculous statements. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about a spectrum of discussion that we've had today, I think we've mm -hmm. touched base on a bunch of stuff. Right. Time. Hopefully you had a good time. Hey, man, let me tell you something. It's an honor to be on here with you, David, man. I'm telling you, man, you do a great job. You're very, you're very good at what you do. I understand why people appreciate your podcast and, and your podcast. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your podcast, my man. Rock and roll. My man. Have a wonderful day. And another one for the books. This Thursday, next up is Steve Savard, first guest from Camo V. St. Louis boy, still getting it done. Steve St. Louis 7 drops September 8th on YouTube. Lou Brock, thank you, sir. As we do, thanks for your time this time. Till next time, so long.